I'm very excited to share this recording with you guys, which happened at our conference, sasopen.com, with over 100 speakers, all founders of B2B SaaS companies. We have a very high bar for what speakers share on stage, so you're going to enjoy this episode where we dive deep into revenue graphs, real tactics, and real growth metrics. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Are you ready? Let's do it. You ready? All right. So guys, I have, a, I have a confession to make. Some of you guys don't know this, but um, the reason Saab and I got close, I don't remember what our first engagement was, but I do remember when FounderPath was growing, we were getting all kinds of inbound from VCs. And in typical Latka form, I said, oh, I don't want your money, but can I buy any of your companies? Um, because none of them were thinking very creatively about capital. And what's interesting about Savneet is, first off, 37 years old today, right? 38. 38 and a happy birthday. It's been recent. No? Uh, not too recent. Not too recent. Okay, but 30, okay, still, 38 years old. Uh, he was a partner at a, a company called CoVenture, which was, uh, we, how would you describe CoVenture? Oh, a labor of love. Um, <laughs> we were uh, originally a VC, and then we kind of stumbled into credit and lending uh, on the idea that data was going to open up a bunch of loan markets that didn't exist before. So, uh, you know, we were financing Uber drivers. You know, today we're the largest financier of YouTube royalties in the world. So we look for these esoteric pockets uh, that need capital that banks and funds can, and it sort of spawned into lots of other stuff. And I take zero credit. I have a partner that, you know, is incredible. See, I have to really work to get him to, like, pull this stuff out. He's very humble. He's now running, by the, by the way, a publicly traded SaaS company, which we'll get to in a second, doing 400 million bucks in revenue. Uh, sorry, uh, doing a lot of revenue. We'll get to that in a second, though. Um, the, the, the YouTube royalty company is referring, if you guys want to look it up on your computers just to see how fast they're going, it's called spotter.la, S-P-O-T-T-R dot L-A. So I'm, the reason I say that is there's a lot of folks that are doing SaaS plus fintech, like Brad and some others, and Spotter's a really interesting example where they could go the other way from sort of financing yep. into software for YouTube creators. But name some other companies that CoVenture has backed. You know, you can name any of them. Uh, um, so, uh, ClearBank, Spotter, uh, Three Colts is an amazing roll-up of uh, uh, sort of Amazon and Shopify enablers, um, uh, TapTap, it's a, it's a long list, and we've gotten very, very lucky, um, kind of right place, right time. You know, the sort of intersection between recurring revenue, lending, uh, and people that actually understood credit was very small, that, and so we were able to kind of figure it out along the way. Well, and they pivoted, you pivoted fairly quickly from going, we want to be the VC firm to, you know, we really like debt much more. What was the, what was the turning point there? You, you know, so, so the coach was originally founded by my partner, Ali, who kind of figured out this sort of, he wanted to be a VC, he's got an amazing story, he, uh, his senior year of college, he started a $350,000 venture capital fund. And he's like, can you be my mentor? And I said, no. I, uh, but I was like, who are your investors? And it was like, you know, a bunch of the board of trustees at Cornell. And I was like, well, this guy's got like a sales talent. Like, that's pretty <laughs> amazing. And I hated his investing. I always joke, like, I thought he was a terrible investor and I hated all the deals. But then he started sending me these, these, these lending businesses. And I, I was a very lucky early investor in some of the first wave of online lending. And I kept saying to my friends, you know, the problem with fintech is that it's just taking all the stuff we do now and putting a consumer acquisition engine on it. You know, you get a loan from Lending Club, it's like the same loan, just someone else is funding it, or I get it online, or I buy an insurance product on my phone. 
said, what would be really cool is if we could use all this data to create new products. So as an example, um, you know, if you want to get life insurance and you have diabetes, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible experience. But like, most people can survive with diabetes provided. And so like, put a Fitbit on me and you know, let's use this data set to lend to a market that couldn't get it before or, or give insurance. And so he started, you know, he's an amazing entrepreneur. He started all these companies. And I was like, you know what's fascinating is these are going to be niche companies. Maybe not VC companies, but like the debt is really fascinating because it's just small enough for like the big hedge funds are going to come in at single digits and it's too new for like banks to come in. Maybe we can be the debt guy. And so it was a, you know, we were both entrepreneurs. We not, never invested in credit, never like really, you know, didn't really know anything. And so we kind of stumbled into it and that's kind of how it picked up. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, a few years later, we were $2 billion of assets and we we're kind of like, well, maybe we should probably just do that. That's uh, wild. So co-ventures, $2 billion and an AUM at this point. Is that funded warehouse facility or is that committed capital? It's all committed capital. All committed. Um, you know, most of it deployed now. And then we've got a few hundred million of uh, venture capital as well. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I said, Saf, please come down from here. You're like in the middle of New York at some point. I said, please come down and speak. Uh, we'll get to that part of the story in a second because he touches so many parts of the ecosystem that we play in. So that's sort of your VC quickly moving into debt. Now, w- where did the story pick up? You know, I'll, the foreshadowing here is in 2019, he was recruited to become the CEO of publicly traded SaaS company, Par Technologies. Now, if you, now that you guys know it and you see the logo, the next time you go check out somewhere and you see the par thing, you'll go, oh, that was, this is the guy. That's the guy, right? So it competes with Toast and some of the other folks yeah. like that, right? So yeah, it wasn't by intelligent design. So, so you know, I kind of uh, was running coverture with, with a partner and I started getting some of these board seats. And, and um, it's a long story. I joined the board of par. It was, again, didn't make a ton of sense. It was a small company, but it happened to have been 90 minutes from my hometown. And I was like, well, I get to see my dad more. That would be fun. And... Uh, and I originally said no because it was kind of a messy situation. It was a hardware company, had a tiny SaaS business. But um, anyways, I ended up joining the board. And primarily um, because I kind of fell in love with the founder who was in Wait, sorry, can you have contact? When you joined, how much hardware sales were they doing? Oh, so the business, I think, was 180, 100 million of revenue, but only 5 million of software revenue. So it was, it was really a hardware and services business that was growing, trying to become a software business. And so I joined the board, and within you know, two months-ish, it it was very clear the company was challenged. Um, so it had this software product, which was point-of-sale software for enterprise restaurants. So you go to Sweetgreen, you go to Arby's, Five Guys, you'd see this product. And that business was growing really fast, 50, 75% a year. Um, and so that was the idea, which is like, oh, you're a SaaS guy, join our board, you'll teach us how to do SaaS, and we'll figure it out. And so I was like, okay, that sounds easy. But, you know, I got there, and, um, you know, within a few weeks, you know, we had two activist hedge funds come in, demand a sale of the company, say a lot of nasty stuff. You can still Google it. It's, it's pretty nasty. Uh, we had... Um, a bunch of financial proprietaries, so we were under investigation by the SEC, the DOJ, uh, and 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 I. The moment I joined the board, I got all these angry emails from customers, and I was like, "Well, that's weird. I'm not even like running the company." So I went to the board and said, "Hey, I know I'm the you know the 30 year old. Can I go meet the management team and understand what's happening?" And I came back uh, and I, after meeting the management team, and I said, "Let's sell the company. Um, let's get out of this thing. Like this is this is this is not going to work." And they said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, we've got this this product called Brink, which is our point of sale software product." It's actually great, and it actually found product market fit in an enterprise, which, is, by the way, is the hardest freaking thing to do. Can you just describe that real quick? So Arby's already pays for the hardware. What's the software that Arby's is so paying for? In, in a restaurant, the point of sale is the, in the, the software that's actually inside that device or the cashier is typing on, but it actually powers the entire restaurant. So every online order comes into the point of sale system and then kicks the orchestration to the kitchen. The taxation, the payroll, the finance, like the credit card, everything goes in that. And so it's the most critical part. And one of the insights I had, um, which is why I got a second, was that it's also the product that companies hate the most. And there's a little-known fact, but I, I'll, I'll spill it here, which is um, VCs love to find companies that have high NPS scores. Your customers are happy. It makes sense. You should invest. But um, I've always told investors, just, you know, you'd be better off buying a basket of stocks that have the lowest NPS of all, and they will outperform the companies that have the best NPS. And, and you'll be like, well, it doesn't make sense. But think about the companies that have compounded the best over a long period of time. It's ADP. It's the cable companies. All the companies you hate actually perform better in the stock market in long, over long periods of time. 
And the reason why is the mission criticality of that product makes it the stuff that gets you the most pissed. If, you know, <laughs> and so if your cable company goes down, your Wi-Fi goes down, you're really freaking pissed. And that's why it's hard to turn those businesses. But I always sort of observe that the, the reason why is they have so much power over the customer to deliver a great experience or to extract revenue or profits. You've got to figure out what you want to do. But there's a, that influence is, is unjust almost. And that's what I saw at PAR. So I said, okay, so I said, anyways, I saw the product. The customers were furious. So the, um, the customer NPS was negative 60. The employee NPS was negative 50. Um, and 55 or something. It was, it was really bad. And then we had no money on the balance sheet. We were living off a credit facility. We had debt. Uh, and then you had this sort of complications of the SEC, DOJ chasing us. It was just a mess. And so I said, sell it. The board didn't want to sell. We hired a search firm to find a CEO. Um, you know, looking back, it makes sense. But the people we thought were going to take the job said no. And so when I became the CEO, I was there to sell the company. I wasn't trying to run it. I was working on co-venture and, you know, I was living in New York City. I was having a great time. Had my first kid. And, uh, uh, so when I came in to sell it, the first day, literally the first day that the CFO and I talk about this all the time, he says, hey, we've got about 10 weeks of cash left. Is that enough time to sell the company? <laughs> and I was like, we're not going to finish the management meeting. It's a public company. You need audits. Like, this is crazy. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know what it was, but it kind of triggered this survival mechanism that I'm sure all of you as entrepreneurs know. And I said, we've got to fix it because I don't want to be the, the, the name CEO when this thing goes bankrupt. It's, you know, I've worked really hard to build a reputation, <laughs> done well or whatever. And so we started operating as if it was our company. And so unfortunately, we did a massive layoff, you know, a couple hundred people, like day one. Um, Out of how many people was the percent left? Oh, it was probably 25% of the people, um, maybe something like that. And so it was, it, was, it was, you know, that. But during that time, we also then, I just started running it. I was like an entrepreneur. So because I was so naive, I'd never run a public company before. I was 34 years old. I really didn't know what I was doing. But also helped because then I was calling the SEC and DOJ and saying, hey, what do we do? Can you just penalize us so we can move forward? Like, the ignorance helped a lot. <laughs> but, but most importantly... You're like the only 34-year-old running a public company just calling the SEC going, please just find us so we can move on. Um, well, <laughs> this you're an entrepreneur. Sometimes you're like, you know, you don't, intellectual castles can hurt you. And so yeah. you got to just go. Um, but most importantly, we ended up creating like a vision, a strategy, like we're going to run here. And the employees rallied, and it was like sort of interesting. And so a few months later, the bankers came back, and they said, listen, we can't find anyone to pay more than the stock price. Um, to do but, what? To, to sell the company. They couldn't oh. find a buyer. What was the asking price? Uh, our shares were in the teens then. So you know, back then, it was probably a couple hundred million. Okay. Um, and then um, maybe it was less than that. I don't remember exactly. But the, the, uh, they, they came back and said, hey, you've got a good reputation. Um, we could probably raise money around you. And, and by then, I had been convicted on this idea that software was eating the restaurant, and restaurants just didn't know it yet. And it was this sort of digital transformation you've seen in other industries where every workflow of a restaurant was going to be a software product. They just didn't know it yet. And then over time, if you, if you see these vertical markets go, originally everyone's like, oh, the TAM is so small. There's only a few hundred thousand restaurants that need this. And you're like, yeah, but they need, they're talking about just point of sale. Tomorrow they're going to need loyalty and then online ordering. And then they're going to need software to manage software and software to manage more software. And so if you can be that fulcrum product, that ERP product, if you will, in that industry, you have the ability to kind of dominate that digital transformation. And so that was the vision we kind of, we kind of went on. And so it's been a, a radical change just in the employee base, the culture, um, and uh, you know, learned a lot along the way. So fast forward today so people can really tune into the follow-up questions. Where is the company today in terms of revenue? So our total revenues are, you know, I think, 350 something like that. And our SaaS revenues you know, are uh, 115-ish. Um, so we've grown pretty fast. That's, and that's incredible. So basically, again, the story gets lost because it's inside of this big, this publicly traded company. But you go from like five million of SaaS revenue in 2019 to 100 million plus in SaaS revenue. You know, three years later, that would be one of the fastest growing SaaS companies out there today if it was a private sort of company. So um, I guess so. That's that's sort of the storyline today. I guess the question I have for you is, if this was private, it's probably easier to run uh, because you have way more flexibility. You had an eighty-six dollars share price back in February of twenty twenty-one. It's now thirty-eight dollars. You're obviously bullish on the vision, yeah. but the stock says something otherwise. How do you get the team and stay focused? So I think it's all about. Um 
you know, thinking for the long run. And, and so, you know, when, when SaaS stocks were going crazy in 2021, um, I went to our board and said, we got to monetize the hell out of this. We were trading at 30 times revenue. Like at 86 bucks a share, I was like, there's no company that deserves to be trading at 30 times revenue for a long period of time. And so we went out and did a half a billion dollar acquisition. And, and I was like, it doesn't matter if we're buying them at 15 times. We're trading at 30. It doesn't really matter. How much was the stock? Did, how much was that deal with stock? Uh, all the majority of it. So that's what you were using. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so we, we were, you know, so we were, I think, we thought of ourselves as capital allocators to a degree. And so we wanted to, to sell. And so we, in 2021, we spent half a billion dollars on a company. We refinanced all of our converts at super low rates. Like we were paying like one and a half percent. From uh, what? For six year debt. Um, What'd you get it down from? Oh, four and four and oh. five. I mean, it was pretty, pretty wow. meaningful. We took on equity. And so, you know, during that time, though, it was tough because the shareholders were screaming, why are you selling shares? Why are you refinancing? You're diluting us. You're diluting us. And I'd be like, you know, I'm really, I'm like, I'd be like, because the stock's trading at 25 times revenue. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And, and looking back, it's the smartest thing we did because now we're in a recession and SaaS stocks have gotten back to the median. They're, you know, they're, they're still, on a relative basis, SaaS stocks are still expensive relative to the average business. And we are armed with tons of liquidity uh, to do more M&A or, or invest in our products. And so, um, the, the advantage of being public is you can do that. And the private market's actually really hard to do that, right? And so people always say, you know, is it fun running a public company? I'm like, there are great benefits to it. It is extremely distracting. You know, use 25% of your time at least is on stuff that you wouldn't have to do if you were private. At least 25%, sometimes more. Um, but conversely, you can use that stock to do M&A. You can, you know, we sell this, you know, it's almost like if I was a private company and we're getting a $2 billion valuation, I'd be like, how do I sell, you know? And, and so here, it gives you some tools to do some creative stuff. What are a couple, and then I'm going to go over to your questions. What are a couple other examples of things you can do as a publicly traded SaaS company that privately, private folks can't do? Uh, so I think there's like three categories. So, so one is on the financing side. You can do public converts that are, you know, saying, hey, give me, let me borrow money at 2% for six years, at, or, and you can convert into my equity at a 30% premium to now. So it's a super cheap cost of financing. Uh, if you, you can get debt also at a cheaper rate, just because you're public, they can sort of secure it against your shares. So there's ways to get just cheap financing. It's like one thing that I think is, is underappreciated about being public. The second one is um, uh, M&A. I mean, the ability to use your stock for M&A is powerful. Um, and, and we've done it over and over again, and it's been a massively you know, a tool of, of, of IRR for us. And the third is employees. Um, your ability to sort of incentivize your employees in a liquid, um, whether it's RSUs or options, is helpful because... They, it means something, you know? And so that, that I think is, those are the three things I always say that are really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the downside is the compliance, the like, notoriety is not that fun. You got to tell your, your competitors every quarter what you're doing, which sucks. Yep. That stuff sucks. Before I go over to questions, again, many of you guys in the room that have taken money from FounderPath, by nature, it sort of is flowing from Sav through FounderPath to you. So you've seen so much. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in the world that has seen as many warehouse facilities, debt facilities, Thinks as creatively as you do about capital. Why did you invest in FounderPath? Uh, you know, I always say you can that say all the you can say the good. No, no, no. I, it was it was uh, it, you know there, there there are bets that are on a market. There are bets on a business. There are bets on, on a jockey. I think FounderPath has been more of a jockey. You know, I'd say this if you weren't here in the sense of like I didn't really know Nathan, but like I like hustlers and I knew the category really well. And so you know, I was like, sure, it seems like a good angel check. Uh, but it, you know, the, 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 stepping back for a second. The entire financial infrastructure isn't built for the modern economy. And it's not, if you think about it, it's actually logical because these businesses were built with regulatory moats. You know, banks have, uh, you know, can survive because they're protected by regulation. And as a result, they can't do all the stuff that helps all the modern economy. Um, you know, I always said, I could underwrite a restaurant better than a bank. I don't need your tax returns. Just put a sensor in your restaurant and I'll track the traffic and be able to lend you better than, than any bank could. And, and that, a bank can't do that. And in a similar sense, they can't lend to a website. They can't lend to a SaaS business. And so categorically, I just would have invested in any company, but you happen to be a great CEO. So I was like, okay, that seems easy. I'll write an angel check and see what happens. <laughs> um, that, that was really it. It wasn't that complicated. And then 
there is this arb where, uh, you know, as you have scale in a lending business, your costs get better and better and better. Instead of calling you to scale, I sort of bet that you could do it. And obviously, I had a lot of relationships that probably were useful. Yep. All right, let's go to your guys' questions on PAR technology and for Sav. Any questions for Sav? Ruben, you got one? He's just blown away. He's like, oh, how do I take GMAC public as fast as possible? Any questions? Brad, you got one? Yeah. Uh, so, last years we've had no yield So I say I don't run the lending business. I should. Be, I haven't run it in a few years, so I'm totally uh, uh, out of it. But I would suggest that it, it's probably the most exciting time if you're in a lending business because there's distress and people in lending love distress. But there's also um, less competition, and so you can actually invest in the deals you want instead of feeling like you missed out. And so I, I guess I, I haven't again run a lending fund in a, in a number of years now, but that would be my perspective: is that it's it's exciting. I think if you run a good business. Co-venture is exactly what you and I were just brainstorming about. Like the closest thing to what you were asking me about is probably co-venture and, and Ali. It basically was saying exactly what you were saying is like too small for like a Goldman or to come in, right? But also yeah. has scale where it's not like a small check. For sure, um, that's sort of where you guys are yeah. playing. So, okay. Any other? Raj, I'm curious. Yeah, Rajesh, go ahead. So to repeat the question, would it have been easier to do the transformation if Saab took the company private first and then did all the changes? So I thought about that a lot, and I actually think the answer would be no, and I'll tell you why. The operational changes were extreme. We replaced almost the entire management team. You know, We shipped a bunch of jobs offshore, did a lot of crazy stuff. But um, the capital markets allowed us to finance it in a really aggressive way that would be very hard privately. To give you an example, you know, the market cap of the company when we took over was a couple hundred million dollars. Our first financing was $80 million. That's very hard to do privately in a convert. Um, and so that allowed us to make these huge, you know, the product we took over, you know, I mentioned that the customer NPS is negative 60 because there's a lot, there was a stability issue. We were a software company that had 40 versions. So it's like we were cloud, but we weren't really cloud. We, we uh, you know, our gross margins on the SaaS was 40% because we had DevOps costs had gone out of control because you have 40 versions. It's hard to deploy, all that stuff. And so we need to do a massive rebuild of the product. Um, it would have been easier to do the operational work privately, but to finance it, I don't know how we, we would have, I think, so, so, yes and no. And then later, I think a lot of our success was sort of buying these, these businesses, integrating them quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's give and takes. Like, net, it's fat, it's, it would have been easier to, you know, instead of convincing a board to do a deal, just to get a deal done if you had a private partner. But I think that the markets allowed us to finance cost effectively, which ended up being a big driver of the underlying return. Yeah, one last one. Take it take back here. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just repeat the question. Uh, I think you're asking is the biggest transformation culture, or was it culture? And and of course, I think everyone would tell you that's that's always the biggest transfer lever for us. It was a big thing, right? Because I was you're kind of walking into a uh, you know 55 year old manufacturing company, if you will, almost that was trying to be tech and amazingly nice, kind people. and you had to get them to believe in a vision that was completely different than what they, they believed in. And so we, what we did was, we, uh, um, somebody asked me the first town hall, what do you think of our values? Cause, and I said, they're a beautiful posters on the wall. I'll know your values when I interact with you and see how you act. And, and, and so what we ended up aligning on was four values. And, and, you know, and I always say that like, when you have 10 values, I, I challenge you to find, you know, find a Silicon Valley company whose values you're like, I wouldn't fit. Like, you're going to fit because you're like, eight to 10 of those are like, sound like me. And we wanted to be like incredibly challenging values that were explicit. So you would say, no, like that's not for me. And so our first four values were speed. Uh, you know, we said we don't like to make people wait for the elevators. Uh, ownership, which is, you know, we want owners of cars, not rental, you know, rental cars. Um, focus, which is always focused on the 80-20, like don't get distracted by 50 priorities. And then it was winning 
effing matters. That, that turns to winning together. We've changed that since. But, um, and, and the idea was you read those values, speed, ownership, focus, and winning. It is like a certain type of culture that you can be like, okay, that's what I'm signing up for. It is not the culture of let's have a bunch of you know oat, oat milk lattes. Like it was a very sensitive because we need, we were we were in a crisis. We were on the emergency table. We were going to go out of business, and so those values aligned the culture. And it wasn't as much as we need to recruit people that wanted that. It was actually getting people out who didn't want to sign up for that. And so that led to it. You know, our, our, I think we have probably I always argue probably the highest employee NPS of an enterprise software company I've seen of our size. Uh, and so, but I think that's only because we were so specific on those values up front that you kind of knew if you wanted to be part of it or if you didn't. Guys, he got going in his 20s with his first startup. Then his friend Ali reaches out. He says, Ali, this is a terrible idea doing this 350K VC fund. They ultimately pivot towards debt. They put $2 billion of capital out. Uh, now Ali, obviously, leading that. And then eventually, he's joining a board, a publicly traded manufacturing company, really. He says, man, we need some of this young, hip tech talent on our board. He joins, uh, call it late 20s, early 30s. And then they say, Sav, please help us sell this thing. They were really, they were recruiting him. He ends up uh, as CEO running Par Technologies, starts in 2019, doing about $100 million bucks in revenue, now over three. 300, 350, the most important thing there is an embedded SaaS coming. It's grown from 5 million in ARR to well over 100 million in ARR. Guys, give it up for Saab, CEO of FAR. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Really good job.